my freaking Hobbs and Shaw showing didn't even have the Tenet trailer. Didn't it? And that was that was where it was like supposed to be. Was that was what like kind of sold me to go see it this soon? But <laughs> oh well, pulled a fast one on me. So I had to go on the internet and track down like the handheld cam version of the Tenet trailer. And I saw a few like silent gifs of that on Twitter, but it seemed mm-hmm. like it it was a pretty simple teaser, kind of like lots of shots of yes, it's uh, very much a teaser. John David Washington and um. You know, lots of interesting text, but not a lot of plot. But we were right, though, eh? What were we? Because the well, the tenant thing, like we talked about, how it was a palindrome, and like Christopher Nolan has this thing where there's always layers and mirrors of things. Oh yeah. So I mean, that's basically going to be the theme of this movie. I heard time travel is going to be a big part of it. So oh, I'm so excited. I yeah. mean, did you see that clip of the uh, that was taken like a sort of a spy clip of the cars driving backwards on the set there a few weeks ago no so what nolan had done was when you first look at the clip uh, and it's kind of like a a wide shot of what appears to be a couple of crisscrossing freeways somewhere in europe yeah and you see all of these cars and trucks driving perfectly backwards in unison across all of these roads and mm. it's basically nolan coordinating with all of these drivers these stunt drivers to uh, you know, methodically, like all back up in uh, together to achieve this like really cool practical right. visual shot, and uh, I'm kind of excited to see how it looks in the final movie. Of course, but uh, again, it just confirms that you know he's willing to. He could totally do that within a computer if he wanted to, but he decided to do it for real. Oh, everything Nolan does is super technical, right? So yeah, that's his thing. Okay, all right, let's start the show. Welcome to the Extra Buttery Podcast, a free-flowing conversation between two guys who love movies. This episode, we talk Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Farewell, and Hobbs and Shaw. I'm Jason, he's Rob, so without further ado... Alright, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Well, it has been. Here I am, flat on my ass. Who, who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. <laughs> Once upon a time in Hollywood, what did you think? So I saw it in 70 millimeter. Oh, yes. Nice. I'm going to ask you about that. They have a run of 70 mil at one of the theaters here in Toronto uh, for the next week or so. It's limited? Yeah, it's like, uh, it's well, I mean, they have plenty of digital screens of uh, d- digital prints of it around the city. But uh, this one particular theater has it in 70 mil. I went to see it like pretty much opening weekend. And I remember coming out of it and thinking to myself, I know what Quentin Tarantino is going for in this. And I don't. I don't really know how effective it is, or or I feel like it was too long. That was kind of my gut reaction to oh it. Oh my god! Like bang on with the with the length of the movie. My god! Like sometimes it really drags. Yeah. The only reason it doesn't feel like it drags is because Brad Pitt and Leo DiCaprio are so good on the yeah, screen. Yeah. Yeah. But then I thought about it a bit longer. Like I'm the worst person to to ask. Uh, immediately after coming out of a screening like what did you think of that and like to give a, a breakdown like i usually need like really why is that i don't know i just it's uh maybe it's it's got to do with the way i like write reviews for the site or whatever but do you need to like 
stew on it a bit more? Or are you like more interested to go on the internet, find more stuff? Or? No, usually I just need to stew on it. Like I won't, uh, if, if I know I'm going to like write it up in a review, I'm not going to like go and read a bunch of other reviews first because I don't want to like accidentally steal any any ideas but and like defeats um, the purpose exactly yeah but the but i will like think about it for a few hours and then i think in this case i was thinking about it and i kind of caught on to this idea and you can read about this more on the site because the my review's been up for a few days there now but i kind of settled on this whole thing about how i ended up liking the movie more upon further reflection because i started to think about how brad pitt's character cliff booth he's sort of like Quentin Tarantino's version of a superhero. Yes. And specifically, like, he's not saving, like, a particular damsel in distress, although towards the end, you know, once we get into the spoiler talk, um, there is, like, some saving, some, some, like, life-saving going on. But I feel like more than that, he's kind of saving analog Hollywood or the, the Hollywood of the late 60s and maybe early 70s that Quentin Tarantino seems to love the most. And he's kind of saying that... If you think about how the Manson murders, they're often talked about as being like the signal that the 60s were ending and that the that kind of era of filmmaking and and entertainment in general kind of came to an end. And so he seems to be saying with this movie, well, what if that didn't happen? Like, what if it kept going? What would that look like? Would that be interesting? Would that be cool? And the more I thought about that and I kind of focused on Brad Pitt's character, I ended up, you know, nudging my uh, my rating of the movie up a bit. It's interesting because a lot of people talked about how uh, the Sharon Tate murder was the end of an era, basically. Had you gone in not knowing about the Manson murders, which admittedly would have been difficult anyway. Yeah. Do you think the connection that Tarantino tied between the death of Sharon Tate potentially being the end of an era was very clear? This is one of the the things that um, you can accuse him of spending a bit too much runtime on this big chunk sort of in the middle of the movie. I, it feels like it's like, I don't know, an hour, maybe 90 minutes long, where they're kind of following Leo DiCaprio's character, Brad Pitt's character, and Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate um, over the course of a whole day. And not a whole lot seems to happen. Like Cliff goes and hangs out with some hippies. Sharon goes to a movie or runs a few errands and then goes to see a, a, one of her own movies. Uh, the Wrecking Crew, and Leo DiCaprio's uh, character, Rick Dalton, spends a day on set and is kind of struggling and, you know, getting in his own head. And that's, plot-wise, that's all that really happens. But I feel like you do need a big chunk of that to kind of build up empathy for Sharon Tate's character in particular, because... Yeah, I think that was missing. Yeah, you need to see her living her life and almost anticipate that something bad is going to happen to her. And that helps you feel worse about, you know, the the Manson murders. And um, it it kind of puts you in her life in mm-hmm. a way. Um, now, could they could they have trimmed out some of that material? Maybe. But I, I still think that it's it's important to kind of helping you feel for somebody without really having the story be about them, because we're kind of observing her almost from like Rick or or uh, Cliff's point of view for a lot of the movie. For all the hullabaloo about Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate in this film, I did not think she did very much in this movie at all. No, and I think that's intentional because I remember when he first talked about, you know, what sort of time period and location he was going to be using for this movie back when he was writing it. 
he kind of revealed that it was going to touch on the Manson murders and then the internet kind of went wild with it and they just said, oh, well, mm-hmm. this movie is just going to be Quentin Tarantino reenacting the Manson murders. He's going to apply his super gory sensibilities to it and that's all this movie is going to be. And that ended up not being the case at all. Like, of course, when when we get to the spoilery section, um, you know, we'll get into that. But he's not really interested in kind of redoing that or staging that because I think he he knows that there's... Plenty of people can like go on Wikipedia, they can watch documentaries, they can do any number of things to familiarize themselves with what really happened in that situation. My main takeaway was that you really needed to be cognizant of what Hollywood was like and the history behind the murder to really appreciate this film. Speaking of violence, like before we could go into any spoilers, I was actually kind of amazed how much how much uh, restraint Tarantino showed with the violence. Yeah, there's really not a lot until you get to the very end. Yeah, but even at the very end, I mean, the amount of ketchup used was like, I mean, a a fraction of what was used in Django Unchained in in the uh, farmhouse shootout. Oh, yeah. It's still very brutal. It's still very effective. Clearly, do you think Tarantino, you know, thought that everyone is expecting this like really bloody gory thing for me, but I'm just going to show the opposite of what people want to see? Do you think there's a bit of that going on? Yeah, he might have been subverting it. I mean, I don't know how how much he like reads up on reviews or or even like asks other people like in, even amongst his friends or colleagues um what they think of his movies um whether like maybe he heard that people thought Django Unchained and Hateful Eight had kind of overdone it mm-hmm. and maybe he felt he would ratchet things back a bit I don't know if he would if he would do that if he would even listen uh hard to tell cuz there's a lot of Tarantino stuff in here it, it, like most of it involving feet oh yeah women's feet yep. it's like up and center in a lot of scenes and i think everyone knows that by now that's his thing but he's almost at this point flaunting it yeah he's almost like hey you know just uh, i dare you to kind of try to make me feel bad about this this is my thing you know <laughs> exactly yeah. is it was there a scene in particular you liked about this movie i i really liked the recreations of the kind of entertainment from the period especially the westerns like uh the the old mm. ads that they were running the tv ads for bounty law um, which seems to be kind of like a a bit of a I, I think it correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, and listeners can also chime in here in the comments if they want. Um, but I'm not sure if Bounty Law actually existed. Um, if it didn't, then probably the closest thing would probably be Rawhide, which Clint Eastwood start on back in the day before he went over to Italy to make um, mm-hmm. the Dollars trilogy. Um and of course, like Rick Dalton's career kind of models that. I loved those kind of like classic recreations of the period. Um, of course, the the cinematography in general is just it's got that kind of sun soaked California breeziness. That, yeah, he's he's very good at that. Yeah, right? and I feel like this is the kind of movie where if you really wanted to, you know, someone like Tarantino, he puts like hundreds and hundreds of references into every little like you know, mm-hmm. uh, if you you could probably look at this frame by frame and pick out so many examples of like a just an obsessive level of detail with regard to the advertisements that are uh, visible in the background or the stuff you hear on the radio when the cars are driving around. So for people who are really into that period, it's just, you're just being, it's like a time machine. You're just boom, right there. My uh, favorite scene, I think Brad Pitt's going to get a lot of awards consideration for this role, but my favorite scene was uh, 
Leo DiCaprio, where he's in scene with Timothy Oliphant, who's playing another actor. Oh, yeah. And yeah. He, he, like, keeps messing up. He keeps um, misremembering his lines. And he's he's both freaking out and acting at the same time and trying to keep it together. Yeah. And DiCaprio has this, like, really manic style of acting where you think he's out of control, but he's in control the entire time. Yes. Um, where he's just shouting things, but he, there's there's a point to it. There's a focus to what he wants. And I find that uh, dynamic really interesting. There's also this part in the trailer where he locks himself in and he's berating himself for not being able to act. Yeah, that was great. I thought those were like the scenes where it's him alone and him trying to come to terms with his basically declining career is what i find the most hilarious going into spoiler territory now though so you've been warned now interesting you picked up on cliff being the superhero um i feel like that's a running theme throughout a lot of films these days but i could also say that it's a very common theme throughout all of tarantino's films that the main character be it kill bill or any of the other films where the main character even Django, is very much like a superhero like there's Obviously, like, some sort of fatal flaw or something like that, but they're almost, like, indestructible. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, but then the question is, like, are they in the traditional superhero mold of they're saving the day or they're rescuing something, or are they just carrying out, like, a campaign of revenge? So I think that that's kind of what, for me, that's where the distinction is there. Like, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily call Kill Bill or uh, Inglorious Bastards um, superhero movies in the same way that I would this one, because both of those movies are are definitely more like revenge fantasy kind of things. And this one is about like Cliff. He kind of, he represents that old world Hollywood. He's a stunt man. You know, he's, he harkens back to a time when um, guys would literally sacrifice their lives for the art of making movies. So he's almost like Tarantino's like idealized version of himself that he's kind of put into this movie. He's like, I'm going to save movies. I'm going to stop the Manson murders from, uh, destroying what we have in this town. Well, like Pitt's character is always focused on a job, right? Whether he's fixing like a TV antenna or the car or whatever. So when he goes to the Spawn Ranch, um, where all these hippies are, um, where Manson's followers are basically sheltered, I think that's sort of like the point where you really see the difference between old Hollywood versus maybe new Hollywood. Not saying new Hollywood is full of vagrants. No. But I'm saying like the structuredness, the stiffness of Brad Pitt is very juxtaposed to like the very um, loose, um, very immoral, very lack of rules based uh, community that Dakota Fanning runs. This is where Tarantino turns history on its head uh, later on in the movie when uh, the Manson followers do show up at Cielo Drive you know, we've been building and building to this point, and we think that the uh, they're just going to walk right up to Sharon Tate's house and carry out the murders the way we remember from the history. But instead, they they're first they're intercepted by Rick Dalton, who's totally wasted, and he and hilarious and shouting, and he he rants at them. He tells them to get lost, and then that uh, triggers something in them where they're like, "No, we don't need to go after the people at the house that Charlie said. Let's." take it out on this guy who's like a symbol of the Hollywood that is corrupting our minds. And uh, then they try to get into the house. They encounter Cliff instead and basically get there, get totally annihilated by (laughs) Cliff and his dog. And can I just say that Cliff has amazing aim for a dude who's 
tripping balls on LSD because <laughs> he winds up with that can of dog food and fires it at that girl's head. And you're like, I don't know how you can do that if he's intoxicated, but maybe that's again, Cliff's a superhero, so he can he can do anything he so wants. So, What do you make of Maya Hawke's character? She's part of the crew of Manson's crew. There were four of them originally, but she like chickens out at the very end. Yeah. And I think I, I was reading up on some of the chronology of the way the attacks happened because I wanted to kind of compare and contrast what Tarantino changed. And if I remember correctly, there weren't originally four people. So I think that's Tarantino's like for people who really know the history, the fact that there's a fourth person in the car played by Maya Hawk, that's I think that's supposed to be your first clue that things aren't going to go down the way they did in real life. Overall, do you like hate this movie? I like it. Yeah. I again, like I said, when I first came out of it, I was like, I can take it or leave it. You know, I could I could appreciate the craft that went into it, but I wasn't super like singing its praises but now the more i think about it the more layers i pick up on and i have to appreciate the fact that tarantino didn't totally descend into a complete gore fest you know i was starting to get really tired of some of his previous movies for that point i just didn't but but yeah what uh, how about you like did you where did you net out on this i was pretty much the same as you i after i watch a movie i've almost immediately after i've kind of formed sort of like a pretty solid opinion about this and now is it the same as you when the when the credits start to roll i uh i thought it was pretty good um i didn't think it was his best work at all i think this is a very generic tarantino film uh without the massive gore and violence the revisionist history the throwbacks the callbacks the homage to old hollywood i think it's very him I actually think Inglorious Bastards and Pulp Fiction are still his two best efforts. This one felt a little dead to me in certain areas, and you don't really get that feeling often with Quentin Tarantino. To me, it's really the performances that drive this film. I didn't think much of Sharon Tate's character. I actually think that, I don't know, I feel like maybe the movie would have been just as effective without her, just because of how little setup they sort of build towards her murder in the film, at least. You know Charles Manson is dangerous because of the real-life implications, not because he shows up for, like, what, 10 seconds in the movie? Yeah, he's not there for very long. No, and so the last reveal where they burst into the house and it's revealed to be Rick Dalton's house is kind of shocking, but there are already so many clues um, ahead of that time that you know that something different is going to happen. I just didn't think the same kind of Tarantino shock value was there when I usually expect one from a Tarantino film. Anyway, we also saw The Farewell, which debuted this past few weeks, and it's been drawing significant buzz. What's wrong, Dad? Please tell me. When that is dying. She doesn't know, so you can't say anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her. Why is that better? Chinese people have saying. When people get cancer, they die. Um, you saw this, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it had, um, it had got its premiere at Sundance and made a bunch of waves there. Yeah. So it's directed by Lulu Wong. And it's semi-autobiographical because the grandma in the movie is based on her real grandma. Mm-hmm. So basically, the story is Aquafina plays Billy, who's this Asian-American kid living in the uh, United States. And she gets news that her grandma's really sick. And she, against her family's wishes, uh, goes to China to visit her. The conflict is that other than Billy, everyone else in the family has agreed to not tell grandma that she's suffering from this, like, life-threatening cancer, lung cancer. 
And so a lot of the conflict revolves around Billy and basically what she believes to be right and true and her belief that everyone, that her grandma has a right to know what kind of disease she has so she can choose to live out the rest of her days or months, whatever it is that she would in, in on her terms. And obviously the rest of the family disagrees and says, you know what, there's no point. It's just going to cause her more pain and sorrow. Like, it's just not the way we do things. Did you know that, by the way, Lulu Wong is Barry Jenkins' girlfriend? I found that out after I saw the movie, but yeah. Oh, okay. So I did too. I didn't know that going in, but I remember watching the movie and I was like, wow, so much of this reminds me of Barry Jenkins because there's similar ideas about different cultures, like a very niche demographic. In this case, it's Asian Americans who have not lost touch, but aren't very in tune with their cultural norms back wherever their ancestral land is. Mm -hmm. If you watch Barry Jenkins, he has this way of filming texture that makes it really tangible, like through color or material or design. And I felt very much the same in this film, because if you watch a lot of the the scenes and the scenes always involve food in the foreground, yeah, which by the way, made me super hungry, (laughs) but also in the background, there's like a ton of intricate wallpaper and I thought that texture and the way they frame things and the way they the camera lingers on certain characters and the conversations very subdued but pointed that really reminded me of Jenkins so I, I don't know how much of an influence he had if any but I really drew that connection there so when I read afterwards that they were um, a couple I was like wow okay that makes a lot of sense the one thing though is that I think for me this is a very relatable film there are a lot of moments that billy goes through or i've been through or have observed the one thing i've always kind of was curious though is that uh, rob did you know that uh aquafina's mandarin in that film is actually not very good yeah well they, i mean the characters are always sort of making fun of her and saying oh your chinese isn't very good and but she does almost the entire movie in chinese yeah so i mean i mean speaking as a as a someone who who is fluent like was that like a joke that they put in the movie or like is her chinese really that bad you, you could definitely understand her but you can also definitely tell that she's not a native speaker that she had learned it after she learned english so there's a lot oh of, yeah there's a few words and phrases she stumbles across because that the translations aren't literal but i just thought that that was another layer to this movie that maybe people who weren't fluent in Mandarin or Chinese wouldn't be able to take away. So I thought that was interesting. But there are a lot of things that are very cross-cultural, like your grandparents stuffing you you, you with food. Um, Oh, yeah. Asking if you're married, asking um, about your future, about like haggling kids, you know, about how like, oh, you don't do this, you don't do that, you don't know this, you don't know that. It's just old people complaining, right? Oh yeah, or even just the um, uh, the kind of generational gap, like or the the disagreement between uh, Billy right. and uh, not just her parents, but her aunts and uncles too. Where not only due to the fact that Billy was um, mostly raised in the United States, but uh, just the fact that you know she she's come of age at a different time, and um, she doesn't she doesn't really see the point of some of their uh, traditions in the way that they do. So there's there's multiple kind of um, multiple disagreements on the go that are all layered. And of course, you've got all the history. And I think that's something that that happens regardless of culture or uh, country of origin. You know, that 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 kind of those kind of dramas are playing out all the time. So even if Mm -hmm. even if you uh, you as a viewer don't haven't necessarily had that experience of like trying to keep 
uh, a grandparent's illness a secret from them, you've probably had a similar conversation up at some point in the past, like whether it's at a wedding or it's at a funeral or something where, you know, family members are disagreeing about how to move forward with something. And that's that's something that, like, I think almost anyone can connect mm-hmm. with. There are certain little things, too. It's kind of like always be my maybe where the mother is cooking with or cutting veggies up with kitchen shears. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, there are little couple things like that in this movie as well, where um, either things they make or the, the things they do, like when grandma exercises Tai Chi in the morning. Oh, yeah. And she's going, ha, ho. Yeah, ha. yeah exactly. And that's very much that's a very common thing. Um, it just adds a little more authenticity to it. I think both Wong and, and Jenkins bring definitely this sort of authenticity to their characters um, because so much of it is, is what speaks to them. Part of the thesis of this film is that like these cultural norms and identities can be so fluid. Yeah, you kind of have to te- take each character and kind of evaluate all the information that you have about them and kind of figure out like, you know, where does the Asianness start and stop and where does the Americanness start and stop? Because or you even think about someone like uh, Billy's father, who he's like a first generation immigrant, but he has perfect English and uh, he's clearly built uh, uh, like a, um, a good business or, or career for himself in America. And at there's points in the movie where he kind of disagrees with some of his family members and says, you know, he he espouses a lot of the American uh, values and traditions that Billy does, too. He doesn't maybe take it quite as far as Billy does. But, um, you know, it's clear that that he's uh, at a different place on the kind of gradient between Chinese and American, um, you know, and, and, or even his brother is like an example of someone who has moved to Japan and raised his family there. And he's had a different experience where it's still within Asia, but he has a point in the movie, uh, the, the, the uncle does, where he kind of breaks down and is like, oh, I, I feel so bad that I've kind of abandoned my mother and I haven't spent enough time at home with her. Yeah, well, there's the conversation at, at the wedding. There's a wedding scene in there where they talk, they argue about how Billy's dad considers himself American, but no less Chinese than everyone else at the table, whereas his brothers lived abroad in Japan, but considers himself first and foremost Chinese. And I thought that was an interesting scene because there are certain, these conversations are very similar to the ones that um, at least I've had as a one and a half generation, as they call it, as people who were born elsewhere, but grew up in North America and for the most part have North American ideas or worldviews right but i i thought this film was fantastic i really enjoyed it um i'm not so sure it has much momentum to get to award season but definitely i could see it getting best original screenplay for lulu wong it's just it really depends on how well this movie does because i think this week with the first week of august um or next week of august second week of august would be its wider release. Yeah, well, it's already, if it's hitting places like uh, Toronto and Vancouver, then it's probably going uh, at probably its widest point now, um, mm-hmm. as, it, as mm-hmm. it will, at least in, in North America. Um, and I'm sure, like, you know, people will try, be trying to get the word out for the next couple of weeks. But as soon as festival season starts up, due to the kind of the themes and the genre of this particular movie, a lot of the, the venues that would be running it will probably replace it with, like, 
other movies of that size and, and genre. So it uh, it won't have a hugely long run. And, um, you know, maybe if if the distributor thinks that uh, they've got a shot at it, they can kind of do a little bit of a of a reminder campaign closer to the Oscars to kind of, you know, refresh people's memories and say, like, hey, this movie came out back in the summer. Like, you know, maybe consider it for such and such. So at one end, we have these quiet indie dramas like The Farewell. And then on the other hand, we get... Probably what will be like the loudest movie of the summer in Hobbs and Shaw. Luke Hobbs and Decker Shaw. We've got unfinished business. Shaw's sister took something from me. A virus that could wipe out half the population and I want it back. Oh boy. <laughs> So I had to basically like if if my recollection is correct, I had to sort of uh, persuade you mm-hmm. to see this, and I wasn't even planning to see it myself. So I was I was just trying to like inject a little bit of extra um, <laughs> energy into uh, into this episode, maybe, and uh, because I know that um, I mean you consider yourself a Fast and the Furious fan, right? Yes, I do. Okay, and that's something that I'm not. And <laughs> that when I went to see. Uh, you know, I will I will probably circle around and see this movie when it hits streaming because I've seen all the other ones and I might as well, you know, get my completionist's badge. But I don't want to pay for it again because when I paid to see Fast 8, I was just kind of annoyed by when I came out. <laughs> but you were saying now, uh, before we started recording, you mentioned that there's actually more complexity in this movie than you initially expected. And that comes as a surprise to me. <laughs> so please explain. It's not complexity in plot at all or complexity in characters it's just the giant behemoth that this franchise has become still to me is shocking in a good way because i don't think anyone expected this think about like 20 years ago when the first fast and furious came out it was a movie about street racing about a cop who goes undercover trying to catch this chop shop guy vin diesel And over the past 20 years, starting basically from Fast Five, it's transformed into this multi-million dollar, billion dollar franchise. And now it's got a spinoff on its own that's killing the box office right now. So in that sense, I think there's a lot to unpack. Um, I could describe the movie in basically 10 seconds to you. And it's basically two ball guys going punchy, punchy and like saying things to the camera and going, (laughs) but that being said, if that's what you're looking for, like it totally delivers. Like there's nothing, um, like I said, complex or high minded or mental about this. The only mental exercise you have to go through is sitting like through two and a half hours of this stuff. Oh God. It's two and a half hours long. Well, it's two two hours sixteen. So you're oh, you're basically in the in the seat for two and a half. I mean, that's that's too long for me for one of these kinds of movies. <laughs> I just I don't think it can sustain itself. It, it does drag, but it I don't think it dragged nearly as much as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Actually. Oh, okay. Well, so if you're not a fan of really corny one liners of big burly men throwing each other around, like I can just say, like this movie's not for you. If it is, I totally recommend watching on the big screen because some of the action sequences in here are very well done. And that's mostly thanks to David Leach, who's who did uh, Atomic Blonde and Deadpool 2, and I think has really carved out a really nice niche for himself mm. as an action film director. Like, he's 100 times better than Michael Bay. He is the guy who will only do action films for the rest of his career. I'm okay with that. I would go watch him because it, the action's coherent. The editing's not frenetic. 
So basically the film is Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Jason Statham reprise their roles from the Fast and Furious franchise, uh, Hobbs and Shaw. Uh, set two years after The Fate of the Furious, we're introduced to um, Deckard Shaw, Jason Statham's sister, um, Hattie. Hattie is an MI6 agent played by Vanessa Kirby. And she, at the start of the film, she's retrieving this biochemical weapon that's been stolen by this terrorist organization. But the mission fails. Um, she managed to get the biochemical weapon out. But in order to do so, she had to inject herself with it, which is like a, a, like a totally like action movie trope. And in fact, it's like basically the same as Mission Impossible 2. Do you remember? When Tandy Newton injects the virus into herself. Oh yeah, yeah. And then, and then, obviously, for, <laughs> for I guess for screenwriting reasons, it gives you more reason to to sort of be vested in the outcome or the the character that Vanessa Kirby plays. Yeah, it kind of puts a timer on the plot. Exactly, puts a timer, puts an extra reason for the protagonist to come and get her, um, and make it gives us a good reason to. Keep her alive, because even though this biochemical weapon is going to kill her eventually, basically for reasons of love and all that is um, manly, we choose not to kill her, even though that makes more sense. <laughs> if you killed her on the spot, the biochemical weapon would just cease to exist. But that's neither here nor there. Right. Um, yep. Anyway, they're chased by Idris Elba. His name is Brixton, and he's a human cyborg, and as he calls himself, the Black Superman, they chase him around London. They go through uh, two or three different sort of altercations until finally they land in Samoa, which is obviously the rock sort of ancestral heritage. And basically it becomes an all out brawl between guys with guns and guys with sticks and bats. Mm, okay. <laughs> and obviously there's a bunch of action thrown. You've already seen it in trailers where there's a part where Idris Elba's in a helicopter and Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham are in a car and they're towing each other. There's four cars connected to each other. They're getting towed by the helicopters trying to go away. And Dwayne Johnson's on one of the, the trucks. And he's trying. he's got one hand uh, on the helicopter and the other hand on the car. He's keeping everything together. Not unlike Captain America in Civil War when he's hanging off. Very similar. So it's interesting. Um, we were just talking about superheroes in in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and this is very much a superhero film. It just doesn't have the Marvel or DC brand attached to it. Yeah, and it, like you were saying before, it it's kind of insane to think that we've gotten to this point where you've got save the world tropes and um, superpowered characters and, um, you know, guys who are pulling off feats that are completely impossible. And to kind of get to that point from the very scrappy, uh, low-budget quality of the first and second Fast and the Furious movies. It's become such a vehicle for these, like, basically bigger-than-life actors that there are actually clauses in the contracts saying how tough each character can be. How many fights they can lose or not lose. Yeah, exactly. So if The Rock goes through a pane of glass, then everyone else has to go through a pane of glass. Oh, my God. And so... Throughout this movie, what you get is like just minutes of Statham and Johnson trying to one up each other. And granted, they do a really good job, but it's just so corny and tiring. Only really people who are vested in this franchise would really get it because it's kind of like a, a Ryan Reynolds film who actually, spoiler alert, pops up in this film. What? <laughs> and uh, I won't say anymore. He pops up, but it's kind of like watching Ryan Reynolds on a loop. 
it, it it gets it's funny to begin with then it gets tiring then you're just like i need this to stop right yeah yeah and that's kind of where that that's the headspace that i think i would be in if i yeah. were to to yeah. pay like you know 15 20 bucks to see this in theaters versus if i saw it in the like no stakes environment of netflix or something yeah exactly so the part in fate of the furious where dwayne johnson and jason statham are basically threatening to beat each other up but they can't because they're behind bars well imagine if there were no bars and it was two and a half hours long or two hours and 15 minutes long <laughs> that's what this movie is and there are a lot of people who really like this stuff i was okay i was actually drawn to it as i said before because i wanted to see the tenet trailer a a movie like this really lives and dies with its stars and a good thing for them is that statham and johnson really work well together and that's probably because vin diesel isn't here to whine and bitch about (laughs) all sorts of things but um they're juxtaposed so nicely with each other so basically the rock is the strong guy the brute guy uh, the matter over mind kind of guy and Jason Statham's the quick guy, the more surgical guy, the mind over matter guy. And the way they're introduced is they're juxtaposed to each other. And one of the funniest moments is when they're making breakfast, they're showing you how they make breakfast. And Jason Statham makes this like really nice omelet. that has got little chives on it. And it looks really great. And meanwhile, um, on the other half of the screen, Dwayne Johnson's just chugging a, a glass of like six raw eggs or whatever uh, it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and so they make that comparison throughout the film. So it's very easy to play off each other. So then what you have then is basically a rom-com, a buddy cop rom-com about two really different people having to come together and accomplish one thing. Right. The wrinkle is obviously Vanessa Kirby and Idris Elba. Um, they're both really good. Vanessa Kirby actually does more in this film than Mission Impossible Fallout. Oh, well, that's a but that's a bonus. Yeah. The weird thing is, though, like there's a sort of like a subplot, a love story subplot between her and The Rock, and it just really doesn't work. Isn't that a little bit like um... he's just he's too old and like any girl you put next to him is just puny. Just, <laughs> there's a size mismatch there that makes it kind of awkward. Yeah. But then she has more sexual tension with Jason Statham. But that doesn't work either because they're supposed to be playing brother sister. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a little bit skeevy, uh, not skeevy, but like it, yeah, it puts a bit of a bad taste in your mouth. And exactly. isn't it supposed to be like canon in that series that The Rock is like a, he plays a happily married family man? Yeah, so th- there's another subplot involving Dwayne Johnson having a nine-year-old daughter. Yeah. Um, who's introduced in one of the previous Fast and Furious films. Yeah, that kind of great scene where he sees, he's, he's like, at the soccer the- uh, practice. Or, well, he yeah. had the soccer practice, and then before that, he notices he's like laid up because he got injured earlier in the movie, and his arms mm-hmm. in a cast. And he looks outside, and he sees like an explosion, and he says to her, "Well, Daddy's got to go to work." And he flexes his muscle and busts out of his cast. And yeah. yeah, so like I said, this film, like, who cares about the plot? It really doesn't matter. It's it's the same as any other action plot you've ever seen, where it's good guys versus bad guys, and people getting framed and tossed and shot all the time. So all these uh, minor characters, the daughter, Ryan Reynolds, and Rob Delaney. Oh, Rob and, Delaney, okay. And Kevin Hart, they all come in as comic relief. Okay. And they add nothing to the movie other than laughs. Like, there's there's no reason for them to be in it, except for a wink-wink, nudge-nudge, and then maybe, like, a two-minute long-winded joke that doesn't have the greatest punchline. Right. And, it, well, it's, it's weird, too, that, like, uh, I Ryan Reynolds is in it, I guess, because he wanted to work with David Leach again. Mm-hmm. Kevin Hart is in it because he worked with uh, Dwayne Johnson on both Jumanji and that movie Central Intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rob Delaney was also in Deadpool 2. So. It's very self-aware. 
much like Deadpool had a habit of breaking the fourth wall, this movie is very much self-aware. So, as I explained, they they had made no attempt to hide that they view The Rock and Jason Statham as superheroes, where they're pra- practically bulletproof, and every time they get whacked or punched, they never show any blood or anything like that. It is PG-13, right. and then with the helicopter hold, you're very much reminded of Marvel and its superheroes, and like the less, last battle scene where there's like two guys running into each other and fist-to-fist combat, a lot of it is very superhero-y. There's a few Game of Thrones jokes and thrown in there, and by that point, I'm just, I'm over it. It's overplayed. Yeah. And I'm at, I'm at the point where I kind of want to forget about the criticism and just kind of enjoy the show for what it was in its entirety. But this film just piles on and on and on. And I wouldn't say it's boring, but it does start to get a little boring. It's a movie you kind of watch once and you're kind of like, yeah, okay, I get it. I get it. It's very prominent that this is a Fast and Furious Presents. Right. Yeah. Which we joked about. We're like, wow, now does this Fast and Furious have a cinematic universe? Because Helen Mirren is back and they make references to some of the other movies. And we all know that Vin Diesel has a shelf life. So, I mean, Hobbs and Shaw is clearly the way to go because they do set it up for future missions. Oh, I'm sure they do. And, like, and you know, you could take any of the other characters from the Fast movies and probably spin them off and, and make uh, uh, side projects out of those as well. Do they do anything? Do they, do they set up anything in this where they address like the the long running Fast and the Furious call for justice for Han. Oh my god! One of the most sore spots of the Fast and Furious is my love for Han. <laughs> um, no, I mean at the end of the day, they they obviously spoiler alert defeat Idris Elba, but the terrorist organization he works for is not completely destroyed. There are internet thro- theories floating around that. Um, because they've retconned a lot of Jason Statham's past about, like, you know, he started off as a villain in the series and then becomes a good guy. There's a theory that the person behind this terrorist organization is Han, who's been brought back from the dead. Okay, well, I mean, I don't, it, I don't know how real that is. It wouldn't but, be the first time. I mean, Letty, uh, played by Michelle Rodriguez, did that for a movie or two. Exactly. Yes, but there's no mention of Han, which was disappointing. The way the sequels are set up, though, is that. Um, Vanessa Kirby and Jason Statham break their mother, Helen Mirren, out of jail after uh, she was captured. And so that that's kind of your wink, wink, nudge, nudge sort of uh, deal right there. Yeah, come on back in a couple of years. We'll have another one of these for you. Exactly. The funniest thing to me is that this Johnson-Vin Diesel feud that was sort of like basically threatening to tear up the entire series or franchise. Remember how Tyrese was like basically crying <laughs> about how he didn't get cast in this movie. Oh boy, that was that was kind of funny. That was super funny. He's done nothing. Um it's just funny that throughout after all this entire ordeal, Universal came out on top cuz now they got two tentpole summer blockbusters. Yeah. That could both make hundreds of millions of dollars. Um but overall, like you're not going it to see fucking plot or you know, how they deliver their lines. You're just there to see things get blown up and tossed around. I would actually recommend you watching the theaters. It's better than Fate of the Furious, I'll tell you that much. Oh, okay. Because Fate of the Furious, I just don't think this, the bar was set very high. Go in just with low expectations. Um, let Jason Statham and The Rock just kind of wash over you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I like that visual of like them washing over me. Yeah, just let them say their bit into the camera. Just kind of go with it. I'll have to laugh all the time. It's amazing how 
they're the only ones who can pull off these really bad one-liner trash talk things in fact the trash talk i don't even think is that good yeah no i i get it i mean i i've understood what uh the fast franchise offers for a long time but i don't know i i do have a hard time when i'm watching them to to kind of turn off my brain uh, that kind of age-old statement well i was gonna ask like what exactly turns you off on it I, i think it's the length and the as much as like there's winking at the camera and they they're mm-hmm. clearly acknowledging that you know they don't they aren't taking it very seriously there's other points where the movies take themselves way too seriously <laughs> like it's almost like a, a whiplash kind of situation where at one moment they're winking at the camera and, and uh, saying a one-liner and then at the next moment they're talking in like some sort of war room type scene where they're like this is the fate of the world yeah. we're gonna be there we're the only guys and i'm like Guys, back up, back right up. You guys are are former car thieves. Why is the government giving you giving you a warehouse full of tanks and shit? Like, why? Where? Is, because they can drive the hell out of. Where them. is the special forces? Where are the? Where's the rest of the, the national governments in any of this? Just a, and then and then I kind of like I'm just going back and I'm kind of ping ponging back and forth between how I feel mm-hmm. about these things. Yeah, the Fast and Furious used to mean the cars. Now it's about the characters. All right. I think that does it for our show. Yeah. So head on over to kinetoscope.ca where there's a new review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and a new review of The Farewell written by each of us. And coming up uh, through the month, we've got a few more movies coming out in August, but then uh, things really get underway for festival season. So we'll have a lot of uh, different posts and uh, maybe a special podcast uh, planned for that in, in next month, September, uh, with lots of coverage uh, from TIFF here in Toronto. Uh, so get excited for that. It's going to be a fun time. Uh, there's already like 21 movies on my shortlist for uh, for TIFF. So <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> not that I'll get into all of them, but, you know, a man can dream. As long as we get into the ones I want. Uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah but uh, until the next episode, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.